welcome to Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. I'm your host, Milton McMainerberry, and playing us in today was Kelsey and the Kids. On Nashville Anthems, our long-term project is to understand what exactly makes 80s and 90s country music work. And we get there from the inside out by picking apart, one at a time, whatever song happens to be playing on satellite radio's 80s and 90s country station when I wrap up each recording session. I use that method of choosing songs so that I can keep my own biases out of the selection process. In other words, I don't just want to look at my favorite songs. I want to take the songs as they come to me so that we can, over time, get a broad look at this otherwise narrowly fenced era and genre of music. Of course, odd things can happen when you introduce that much luck of the draw into the selection process, and that's what's happened here. That's right, folks. This week, Satellite Radio has us drinking from the same pitcher it served to us last time, that of Brooks and Dunn, this time with a hit from a couple of years later, the song That Ain't No Way to Go. But we aren't going to fight it, folks. This unexpected turn may have made us stop and think, made us consider our next step, but far from ending up reluctantly resigned to our fate, we're drinking this double shot right down. Let's have a little fun, shall we? But first, let's give a little credit where credit is due. That Ain't No Way To Go was released as a single in 1994, the final single off of Brooks and Dunn's 1993 album, their second album, Hard Working Man. In the Neon Moon episode, I talked about Brooks and Dunn's debut album, Brand New Man, and what a big hit it was. Well, Hardworking Man is no brand new man, okay? I think that's a fair statement to make. But as a sophomore effort, it's certainly a worthy showing. Let's just forget that dance remix of Boot Scoot and Boogie this on there. Let's just pretend like that never happened, though, shall we? Anyway, similar to Neon Moon, as I said in the previous episode, That Ain't No Way to Go was kind of down the list in terms of singles from Hardworking Man. In that sense, it's maybe closer to an album cut, and I'd say that it is a pretty good representative of that album as a whole. It's a little slicker, a little groovier than Neon Moon, a little turbocharged where Neon Moon was petering out, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I need to mention songwriters, don't I? I mentioned this in the last episode, but in a sense, Brooks and Dunn is more of a songwriting duo than they are a vocal duo. While Neon Moon was an exception to that rule, that ain't no way to go is not. This one was written by both Kix Brooks and Ronnie Dunn, along with one of their producers, that producer being Don Cook. Then finally, as far as credits, co-producing the song with Don Cook was Scott Hendricks. Okay, as I couldn't resist alluding to during the credits, and as you've probably picked up on, I can't help myself, folks. It's just too perfect. With this song coming up right after Neon Moon, which we approached by comparing it to its predecessor, Long Neck Bottle, I gotta do the same here, but that ain't no way to go. And that's our first key feature that we're going to talk about. I think that That Ain't No Way to Go can fairly be read as a prequel to Neon Moon. And why do I say that? Well, first, the obvious, they're both Brooks and Dunn songs with Ronnie Dunn on lead vocal. They also happen to be in the same key, the key of A. And the songs also have similar grooves, but the differences there start to be informative. In a word, That Ain't No Way To Go's groove is much livelier than Neon Moon's. So we talked about how if anyone was dancing to Neon Moon, it was the awkward slow swaying of your junior prom. But Neon Moon really more has that under the boardwalk, spent and sitting groove. You in the shadow. 
Now this smoke for you that ain't no way to go, though. I'm not sure it makes you want to dance, per se. We're not in that bar yet, but it does make you stand up. It's sassier. It's saucier. It's looking for someone to fight. It's not sure what it's going to do, but it wants to do something. Lonesome sound says she ain't coming back. It's such a cold blow from out of the dark. There's pent-up energy in this groove. It's not all out, like ain't going down till the sun comes up, but it's not sitting this one out like Neon Moon. It's up and looking around, almost stealthy, getting ready to react, if not exactly knowing how to react yet. One way you hear that is in the faster chord changes of That Ain't No Way To Go. Neon Moon had those lazy, infrequent chord changes, especially in the verses, Those would sit on the tonic chord for four bars at a time, like a blues song, or like Under the Boardwalk, and not bat an eye. It picks it up a bit in the choruses, but it still never changes chords after fewer than four beats. On the other hand, That Ain't No Way To Go changes chords quite a bit. Quite often, even, they split the measure, so there'll be a chord change every two beats. And there's also a heavily syncopated part, which we'll get to in a moment, that changes chords every beat or every beat and a half, something like that, because of the syncopation. But... The point is, that ain't the way to go keeps you on your toes more in terms of following where it's going musically, whereas Neon Moon, much lazier, much easier just to sit back, relax. So kind of as I was just alluding to, notice also the more prominent use of syncopation in That Ain't No Way To Go. You really hear it in the verses of both songs. Neon Moon's groove was all in the bass line, if you remember. It was this. Now, That Ain't No Way To Go also syncopates the groove in each measure of the verses, just like Neon Moon did, but it's a lot sassier. You can hear this in the bass guitar again, but especially in the acoustic guitar, which shares the load this time with the bass guitar and also with the bass drum in establishing this groove. And it uses a lot of staccato articulation, a lot of muting of the strings to keep them from ringing, to cut the notes short, leaving a lot of space between the strum on beat one and the syncopated longer strum on the upbeat of beat two. It sounds like this. Now, if you remember, that stopping of strings to leave silence where there would have been ringing is the opposite of the sonic feel of Neon Moon. Neon Moon was all about letting notes ring, creating those clouds of tones and overtones that gradually rolled in and out and led to that palpably hazy atmosphere the song had. There's a rundown bar across the railroad track. I got a table for two. But that ain't no way to go is still thinking clearly. It may be confused, but it's not unfocused. The groove has these short, concise thoughts, these statements, these questions, and leaves space to think about them individually during this initial processing phase of this unexpected news that the protagonist has received. And speaking of syncopation, there's also a moment of very heavy syncopation, as I alluded to a moment ago in That Ain't No Way To Go, which would have been utterly foreign to Neon Moon. And that happens on the phrase, after all this time. That phrase has five syllables. The first syllable lands directly on beat one, but all four of the succeeding syllables are on upbeats. So that's very heavy syncopation. It occurs at the end of each chorus, and it's the most frantic 
angriest part of the song. There's a lot of attitude in that bunch of syncopation, especially the words that accompany that syncopation. After all this time, that ain't no way there's an attitude there, a sass there that you would have never seen in Neon Moon. Now, the other big contrast that I want to talk about between these two songs is that That Ain't No Way To Go is significantly more complex musically. That's true rhythmically, as we just described, but also in terms of the tones and chords that are going on, That Ain't No Way To Go is significantly more involved than Neon Moon. So Neon Moon was a very straightforward three-chord country song. Every chord was either one, four, or five. If there's anything wrong with that, it's very common in country music. We've, we've seen that in several songs that we've talked about. But That Ain't No Way To Go adds to that standard one, four, or five. You've got some relative minors in there, some three minors, which are kind of cool, a little bit different. There are some split chords, some suspensions in there, which we've talked about those two things before. And there's even a flat seven chord, which is an out-of-key chord. It shows up quite a bit in the song. It, and it amps up the drama each time it shows up in a major way, especially at the ends of the choruses. That's true of the first chord of each chorus, too. That's a pretty dramatic chord, where Ronnie Dunn goes up to that E on the word go. That ain't no way to go. The chord under that is a D major ninth chord, or it's may, maybe it's an A over D if you prefer. Those are very similar. Anyway, major ninth chords can be very pensive chords, and that would have made sense in Neon Moon, although there weren't any in there. But in That Ain't No Way To Go, the chord functions as less pensive and more jarring. It's kind of like that flat 7 chord I was talking about, but I'd say even more so because that flat 7 chord can be kind of understated, but here it always lands right over that big Ronnie Dunn note. So it really wakes you up, slaps you in the face, like, you know, say, oh, I don't know, a lipstick goodbye on the bathroom mirror might. We never once let on We were falling apart That ain't no way to go So all that to say, all those similarities and interesting differences that we're hearing in That Ain't No Way to Go really are the steam that was gone by the time we got to Neon Moon. And that's why I say That Ain't No Way to Go can be read as a prequel to that song. Because in That Ain't No Way to Go, we're getting indignant denial versus hopeless resignation. Notice that there are no mournful instruments. There's no steel guitar in this song. There's some fiddle, but it's used pretty sparingly. Just like fills here and there, really nothing like those meandering legato licks of Neon Moon. In place of all that are more in-your-face, rock-and-roll-style electric guitars, because That Ain't No Way to Go still has some fight in it, some spunk that we did not see in Neon Moon. Notice, too, the difference in point of view. Neon Moon is inward-looking in first person, where That Ain't No Way to Go is finger-pointing in second person. And I think the word that sums all this up, the main difference in musical and lyrical attitude between Neon Moon and That Ain't No Way to Go, is the word indignation. Don't you think that I, what, deserve to hear you say goodbye? Like, hey, I'm entitled to more than this. You come back here, kind of thing. That idea deserves its own discussion, so hold that thought for a moment. But before we finish with this song comparison, I think it's worth pointing out that in That Ain't No Way To Go, the perspective does shift a little in the second verse. And that slight shift is, to me, where it really starts to point forward to Neon Moon. The second verse starts with this great country couplet, Getting nowhere, I'm tired of thinking. Guess I'll do a little wishful drinking. 
the star imagery that immediately follows that line too fits Neon Moon really well. But wishful drinking and making whiskey wishes may be good ways to describe what the protagonist in Neon Moon was doing, at least initially. By the end of that song, I'm not sure how much wishing he's doing. It's more like wallowing. But that's where this guy is headed, right? I don't think, even in That Ain't No Way To Go, even he expects to be holding out hope long. I mean, he even admits it in the next line, right? When he admits to himself, she ain't coming back. Because his reaction to this unexpected news isn't static, but dynamic, and it isn't linear either. This feels like the beginning of the spiral that we were in the middle of in Neon Moon. By the way, I do like the nod to all-time classic country song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, with the reference to a train whistle, probably from the same tracks that the bar in Neon Moon sits across. But the train whistle and its lonesome sound in this second verse, imagery and verbiage that almost has to have been lifted from I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. The midnight train is whining low I'm so lonesome I could cry. And that's a song that Neon Moon has more in common with than That Ain't No Way To Go does. But that difference is informative. I mean, I'm so lonesome I could cry presents just utter despair at being alone. And maybe that's where this guy is going to end up and maybe where the guy in Neon Moon was headed. But we're at a different stage of the process in That Ain't No Way To Go. And the reference to I'm so lonesome I could cry highlights... The other key feature that I want to get to, and it's this, that this song presents a specific, unique angle on a country trope. Now, that trope is specifically in this song, that trope of being left by your significant other. Similar to the song Goodbye Says It All by Blackhawk, remember that song? The protagonist in That Ain't No Way To Go finds himself dumped, without a discussion, and with barely even a note. Blackhawk's Dear John lipstick letter just said, Goodbye. Brooks and Dunn's at least got the word baby appended to it, and it was a mirror rather than the wall, so probably easier to clean up. But the point is the same. You've been left without notice, without a hint, without a conversation, at least from the point of view of the person who was left, which is the only one we have, that of a man who is blindsided and stunned. So the result isn't sadness, not yet. As we said before, the better word is indignation. This left lover is a appealing not to his good deeds, but to higher justice here. Like, these things happen, but why is it allowed to happen like this? We've already mentioned the line in the chorus that appeals to what he deserves, and it feels like he's appealing to some minimum standard of human dignity here. Listen also to the line, it's such a cold blow from where? Out of the dark. He also says his lover's leaving was without warning. He, in fact, says the indications were quite the opposite, that she'd always said that they'd had a good thing. So we have here a man who hasn't just been left. He's been left in a way that feels unjust and in a way he certainly didn't see coming. And what I like about all this is that it's different and it's specific. And I want to look for this more in 80s and 90s country music. We all know the country tropes, you know, getting drunk and mamas and prison, trains and trucks. Play a country record backwards, and you get your truck, your dog, and your wife back, right? Yeah, there's definitely truth to those cliches. But what I like in this song, and this was true of Neon Moon also, is that it grabs one of those tropes, the most common one, losing your woman, right? And focuses on it in a very defined, specific way, using specific personal details to establish that unique perspective. 
This feels to me like something country does well in general. And what I'm wondering is, did this effect get amped up in the 80s and 90s because of a certain maturity that country music had reached at that point? I'm going to admit, maturity is not a great word here. It has connotations that I'm not going for. But what I am getting at is this. Had country music established the tropes to such a degree by this point that in order to have some originality, songwriters really had to drill down and be very specific and intentional about the spin they put on these tropes. That was certainly happening before, but did it get more pronounced? Hmm. Maybe. Stay tuned, and let's see if that idea has legs by continuing to examine the evidence one song at a time. And now, listeners... I'll do better than a half-baked Dear John letter to bid you farewell. As we close the book on That Ain't No Way to Go, let's reach into Kix Brooks's black cowboy hat and see what we'll be looking at next time on Nashville Anthems. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. Well, we can't do that one. The song that came up is the first song that we covered on this podcast. Patty Lovins says, How Can I Help You Say Goodbye? So we'll wait a moment. We'll see what the next song is. Insert Final Jeopardy theme here. Okay, the next song's up, and it's Clint Black. The song is Summer's Coming. Glad we finally got to Clint Black. Definitely an important figure in 80s and 90s country music. So join me in two weeks as we tackle that song. And in the meantime, you can write me at MiltonMcMainerberry at gmail.com. You can also follow Nashville Anthems on both Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I gotta go. I think I hear someone in the bathroom.